All right, great. Well, welcome to Fellowship. We're, we're so glad that you're here with us. Um, kids, at this time, you guys can be dismissed to your time of worship upstairs. Um, and as they go, let me remind uh, everyone that uh, we have our VBS coming up. Uh, that is going to be July 11th through the 15th. That starts on a Sunday night, ends on a Thursday night. So make sure you mark your calendars for that. Plan to be involved. And uh, registration is now open. So you can find a link to that on our website, amongst other places. And so, um, yeah, sign up. And if you want to be involved, you can talk to Rika, who is in the back checking the kids into their, the system right now. Or you can talk to my wife, Emily, who's up here on the front row. And uh, we would love to have you involved. Um, the other thing I want to mention is that we, so this, this season of time when Tim is on sabbatical, five Sundays that he is, uh, he is not going to be here as he takes a time of rest and reflection, um, we have specifically packed this jam full of missions speakers. Last week, uh, we had um, Nick Brown come and speak, and it was great. Um, the following week, we will have um, Jim Boyd with Rebuilding Hope come to speak. Um, and I'm very much looking forward to, to that. Um, but in addition to all of this, we are a very missions-minded church. So just having mission speakers wasn't enough. We also need a conference, right? And so we're going to do our missions conference a little bit different. Uh, usually we do that near the beginning of the year. This year, it will be in August. Those dates are August 27th, 28th, and 29th. That will look like a Friday evening session, Saturday morning, and Saturday evening with an international dinner, and then uh, a Sunday morning session as well. So please mark your calendars for that. How are we doing? Are we good? All right, so I, I, I require that you talk back to me. Is that okay? Is that okay? Okay. No. <laughs> well, nice. Well, uh, it's always a joy and a pleasure uh, to speak. Um, this uh, particular message that I'm going to bring for you this morning uh, is going to be about community and culture change specifically, and it doesn't really seem like at first bat that those things will intersect, but trust me that they do. Um, this has kind of been stewing in my heart for over a year now, and the, the context for why I'm going to get really fired up in the midst of this, um, you need to know why. Uh, about a year ago, I had something like viral pneumonia, um, and it descended upon me, and I descended into the bed, right? And uh, it was early on in COVID testing, and so we really didn't know what was going on. I was quarantined from my family in my bed, and if I moved at all, I would cough. And so I laid on my side, and I tipped my iPad on its side, locked the screen, and just watched TV for two days. <laughs> and uh, after a couple of days, I started to feel better. But like I said, it was early on, and so it took me a full seven days to get my negative COVID results back. And so I had four or five days sitting alone in my room with nothing to do. And so like a good overachiever that I am, I decided to write a book. <laughs> and as a worship leader, you would think that I would write a book on worship, right? And that's what I started to do. I sat down and I sat at my iPad and used this little janky keyboard to try to type out uh, some thoughts on worship and what the Lord had pressed in my heart. But what poured out of my heart was all about the people I wanted to worship with not about the concept of worship as a whole. And I realized after a little while that it was in the midst of my own personal community drought that God was stirring in me this desire for biblical community. 
And so my goal this morning, if nothing else, is just to to awaken our eyes and our minds to this desire inside of all of us that that should be there for a rich biblical community. Now, I thought before I got sick that community or fellowship, and I'm going to use those words interchangeably because Scripture kind of uses community and fellowship interchangeably. I thought that fellowship could be boiled down into something as simple as just Christian social activities, right? Which would mean that you could strategically plan your Sunday morning in such a way that you could come into this building at a specific time, sit in a specific place, and leave at a specific time, and never say a word to anybody, and come out and consider yourself having fellowshiped with other believers, right? Like, that's not biblical community, right? We kind of know that, right? But, but, but we check that box off, right? And so that's what I'm pushing against here, is that it's, biblical community is so much more, so much more than just Christian social fellowship. In fact, um, the word in Scripture for community is a word called koinonia. Say koinonia. Yeah, good job. Uh, Koinonia is the first definition, if you've got a nice, big, thick, strong concordance, the first definition of the word koinonia, and it's, it's the word that in Scripture is, in English, is translated community or fellowship, Uh, The first definition is sharing. Now, sharing is a a mutual obligation, right? Like there there is somebody who has a need and there is somebody who has excess, right? In order for sharing to happen. And and then... The opposite is true. Like you can be looking for needs when you have excess. You can look for people who have needs when you have excess. Or you could be looking for the people who are, are overflowing a blessing when you, you have a need. But there has to be a mutual agreement that sharing is allowed to take place, right? So that's the first definition of, of, of koinonia is, is to share, which already goes beyond our little social experiment with the word our, our Christianese word, fellowship, right? Because it's, it's suddenly costing us something. Now, the second definition of the word koinonia is held together by the whole. Now, if you were at the picnic, I believe it's when uh, Tim used this example of the redwood trees in California. The tallest trees in the world have a root system that does not go below 12 inches below the ground. You would think that these massive trees would have massively deep root systems, but the thing about redwoods is that they can only grow in a grove because the way they are held together is by interlocking their roots with one another to give themselves enough structure in order to then rise up very big and very wide. And so that's the same idea with koinonia, held together by the whole, interlocked with one another so that there is a structure and a foundation on which to build. And then the third definition is this idea of a right-hand man. And as you look at it very closely, it's more of a visual uh, representation of the word than it is like a, a, I don't know, like a definition, right? And, And in my mind, the thing that came to my mind, is the difference between if somebody needs up on stage, I would not grab their hand like this. 
I would grab their hand like this, right? The right-hand man, the strong hand, the one who is on the strong side. In Scripture, the right hand is a place of honor. It is a place of authority, and it's a place of power. If somebody stands at your right, they are the one who is closest to you. And so this biblical word koinonia is much more than just community, right? And, and it's much more than fellowship, but it, it has, has to do with this group that is willing to bond with each other. And, and the, the, the whole thing about it is that it's, it's, a, it's a group concept, but God also gives us an individual calling to koinonia and to fellowship with each other. So, um, the, the, I want to go back one slide there, Steve, if you don't mind. I want to show you this right here. I just want to give you some context. I'm only going to look at a couple of verses. Um, these, this, is, this is a lot of scripture up here, and I don't have time to go over it, but when I was down in the rabbit hole, as it were, uh, with, with being sick, uh, these are the verses that called me out to unity. This is your personal calling to unity. And if you would like these verses, just come and ask me. I can email them to you or I've got printouts for these as well. And so there's, there's a lot of scriptural context for this, this idea that we're talking about this morning. But we're going to narrow our focus to two particular passages of scripture. So if you would turn with me to John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. Now, let me give you some context for this. This is the Last Supper. This is the last meal that Jesus shares with his disciples before he goes to the cross. And as he's there with his disciples, the 12 men who are closest to him on this world, he decided to pray over them and to pray for you. Do you realize that? That, that the one who was there at the foundation of the world Jesus Christ himself, as he was considering dying, I've got, I've got three kids and one on the way, right? If I, was, if I had a terminal illness, my last words to my kids would mean something, right? I would want them to lean in and listen. And this is the context that we're approaching right now with Jesus, is that he is speaking to us the words that he is going to say right before his own death. This is the thing that he wants us to know. So, with that in mind, let's read this together. I'm not asking on behalf of them alone, that is, the disciples, but also on behalf of those who would believe in me through their message, that's me, that all of them may be one. As you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory you gave me, so that they may be one, as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfectly united, so that the world may know that you sent me, and have loved them, just as you have loved me. Are you kidding me? We are supposed to be that united with each other. 
I can't even claim that with my own wife. Lord knows we have plenty of disagreements. Amen. And you and me, everyone in this room are supposed to be bonded together at the same level that Jesus himself is, is, is connected to the Father? How in the world is that supposed to happen? Well, the answer is hidden inside of this passage right here. The, the second paragraph, I have given them, sorry, I'm messing it up. Ah, sorry, go back, Steve. I've given them the glory you gave me. What is a glorious thing that the Lord has given us? So that they may be one as we are one. How are we united with each other through something that is a glorious gift? I and them and you and me, how do we have the presence of God inside us? What is a glorious presence of God inside us that causes us to be unified with each other? It's none other than the Holy Spirit. That's the only way that this works is through the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Oneness can only come through him because it is through him that we can have anything in common. And any attempts towards unity with other believers without the presence of the Holy Spirit is futile. And only an eternal all-powerful being could take something as diverse as the church and make it one thing. So before we go any further, you need to realize that if you're going to start pursuing biblical community in your life, you need to make sure that the Holy Spirit is in you. That is the key. And how do you get the Holy Spirit? You believe in Jesus' all-powerful and complete death and resurrection from the dead that paid for your sins exclusively. Nothing that you bring to the table. Only through a gift of his death in your place. And that when he were resurrected from the dead, he conquered sin and he conquered death and he now sits at the right hand of the Father to intercede for you. And it is only through belief in that message that we are then given the Holy Spirit and able to pursue community with each other. Now community will do three things so far as I have found thus far. <laughs> community will create something, community will cultivate something, and community will cost us something. I worked really hard to make sure they were all C's so you can remember them. Let's talk about what community creates. Community creates a culture. And if you sit and think about it for a little bit, you can start to understand this a little bit. But, and I think the best example of this is, a, is, a, is my college campus where I went to school. Community was a really big deal. And it, suddenly we realized that we were creating, I went to Bryan College, there was, and we called it being on the hill because my college sits on the top of a big hill. And we would recognize that there was a stark difference between life on the hill and life off of the hill. 
When you were surrounded by community, there was an understood culture that you were creating and a part of and, 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 and taking part of, but it seemed like a culture shock and, and the world seemed very different when you came off of the hill. So that's what I always think about when I, th- I think about uh, a community that produces culture. And, and the problem is, uh, there's a lot that I want to say about this, but for the sake of time, I want to talk about this phrase that Christians use all the time, in and not of. Raise your hand if you've heard that. That's right. I want to be in this world and not of this world. And the problem, and here's the, here's the verse. This is also in John 17, uh, Last Supper. It says, the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And so what we have this, is this concept where um, Christians say, I want to be in the world and not of the world, and they use that as an excuse for one of two things. One is to be just like the world, Monday through Saturday, and to say, well, I'm just in the world, but I'm not of the world. But if I were to look at your life with a magnifying glass I wouldn't be able to tell that you're not of the world. But we can say that just to cover ourselves from being judged by other believers, right? So, so you can either look like the world and say, well, I'm just in the world and not of the world. And, and then the other side of the problem with this is saying, okay, well, I'm in the world and not of the world. The world is a terrifying place, and I don't want to be in trouble with God. And so I'm going to wall myself off from the rest of creation and just create just an exclusive Christian bubble where I'm safe and just say, well, I'm in the world right now, but I'm not of the world because I'm hoping for a final destination when I'm no longer in the world. And the goal is to ultimately get out of the world. So those are the two extremes that the believer will fall into is, is to look too much like the world or to avoid the world at all costs in order to self preserve. But that's, the problem with that is that it's not treating the verse right. The the problem is that both mindsets are are worried about a destination, not a present reality. What this verse is saying is that we are not in, we are in the world, it's a place of our existence, we are not of the world in the same way that we are aliens in a foreign land ambassadors carrying the call of Christ with us as we walk through this world. And so it's not a, a, dest, a final destination, but a current reality. And so we exist in this world with the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's not a reactionary statement to be in this world and not of this world. Rather, it's a reality that if the Holy Spirit lives inside of me, then every step that I take creates holy ground. And so as I walk through this world and as I engage with the world, I am bringing with me a culture of heaven physically with me into a world that needs hope. That is what Jesus is saying. And and you will be hated because of that, by the way. Because this culture of heaven clashes against everything that the world values. There's a lot more that I want to say about this, but let's move on to talk about community cultivates something. 
Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, and it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry and to build up and to build up the body of Christ until, not so that, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God as we mature to the full measure and stature of Christ. This morning, if you are reading the Bible in a year, we, we all try to stay together. And if you're doing it exclusively on a digital format, then this morning you just finished the book of Job. And, and when Job, at the, uh, he has all of these complaints against God because of all of the terrible things that have happened to him. And when Job finally gets answers from God, which God doesn't give him answers, God says, where were you when I created the world, right? But the, the point is, when Job sees God for who he really is, he grows in spiritual maturity. I want to let that sink in for a second. Because uh, a lot of times we think about spiritual maturity as far as how much can I learn about who God is? The concept of God, and I'll equate my knowledge of the things about God to my spiritual maturity. I think that if we took a shift and we realized if I could see God in the reality of who he is and in the greatness and in the wonder and the, the awesomeness that he is, if I could see that in a more real way, that would make me a mature Christian. Romans 11, 30, uh, 33 through 34 says, Oh, the depth and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgment, how unscrutable his ways. Scripture itself tells us that we're not going to get it, right? We're never going to get there. But if you look back at, at Ephesians 4, you can go back one slide. The beginning of that passage all had to do with different personalities and different giftings that God has given us inside the church, right? You get prophets, evangelists, teachers. The reason that we are so diverse, it, it, it seems like an oxymoron, that God calls us to be one, and then he also says, well, some of you are going to be gifted in other ways than others, right? It's the same reason as why a camera phone has multiple lenses on it. Does anybody know why that is? It's the same reason you have two eyeballs, right? Now, cameras can take great pictures with just one lens, but when you cover up one eye, the thing that you lose is your depth. And so that's why you have all of these phones coming with a bunch of different cameras, because the more distance you can have between two lenses, the more you can accurately gauge how far away something is from you. And so, in the same way, 
the more that you can see through someone else's view of who God is, the more 3D he's going to become. Are you with me? So you cannot pursue a relationship with God effective. There's a limit to how much of God you will be able to see if you are pursuing him solo. Pursuing him in the midst of community drives you towards spiritual maturity because you see him in 3D. If God would concede to me his omnipotence for 24 hours, you would see how many things, how many changes I would make in the world. But if he gave me his wisdom too, I would leave things as they are. Now everything that we've talked about thus far has been internal growth. I want to jump back to John 17 briefly because we missed something really important is that Biblical community not only cultivates growth inside the church, biblical community will cultivate external growth. I and them and you and me, that they may, we may be perfectly united so that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them just as you have loved me. So there's something about the, the culture that being a believer creates in community, and there's something about the, the, the growth of that, and there's, there's something about the richness of the love between believers that's supposed to be an evangelistic tool globally for the church. How in the world does the world view us when there are over 45,000 different denominations globally. We have got to start walking and taking steps towards unity with, the same, with, with each other. And this is the same game plan that God has had from the beginning of creation because you can, you can look at the book of Leviticus and uh, Moses' law and you can look at uh, the calling on Joshua's life as the nation of Israel is walking into the promised land and, and they're supposed to be this beacon, this lighthouse to the nations around them. And following the law not only was supposed to put them in line with God's will, but in addition to that, they were supposed to be a blessing to the nations around them because the nations around them were sacrificing their own children to false gods. And they were supposed to present this all-powerful, omnipotent, and all-holy God that, that showed them how to live a better life and could create a better culture. Community is supposed to be an evangelistic tool. We are supposed to be creating something that's better than what the world can offer. Biblical koinonia does that. Biblical community will also cost you something. Success is messy. And it's messy because it involves people. 
I think a lot of the times we, we just gloss over community because of the cost associated with it. Getting involved in people's lives, there's a lot of mess in people's lives. I know that because there's a lot of mess in my life, right? But what I'm trying to get you to see is that the rewards so outweigh the cost. It's going to cost you money. It's going to cost you time. It's going to cost you your pride as you force yourself to be vulnerable with others. But it is worth fighting for. Earlier I showed you this list, which is a call, God's call to the believers to unity. There's a second list. It's just as long. And these are all verses in Scripture that call us as believers to fight for community. Can you, can you imagine what the church would look like if we fought to be unified with each other more than we fought for doctrinal differences? This is, this is a biblical priority for us to be united with each other. My favorite piece of scripture is uh, about fighting for unity is 1 Corinthians 1.10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind in the same judgment. This is a ridiculous statement without the Holy Spirit. So what do we do? Where do we go from here? Clearly this is important to God. I mean, Scripture is riddled with these commands to us to be unified with each other. And my application is very simple. It's simply to be like Jesus. As you intentionally step out in faith and and step towards creating a biblical koinonia relationship with others inside of this building, be like Jesus. Look at the way that he prioritized his relationships and follow his example. There was a study done a a while ago um, that revealed this thing called Dunbar's number, okay? And this is is a visual for us here. Um, uh, Let me go back one. And Dunbar's number is simply, uh, your, your brain has limitations on the amount of relationships that it can handle. And this is really fascinating because uh, if, if I am talking to one person, person A over here, then I'm just, my brain is just concerned about how she and I relate to each other, okay? But then if I have person B over here, my brain is concerned with how I relate to person A and how I relate to person B, but my brain is also concerned with how person A and person B relate to each other. 
And so there are three relationships that my brain has to juggle in the moment. What happens if we shift that and we add A, B, and C? Suddenly, my brain is concerned with how I relate to person A, how I relate to person B, and how I relate to person C, and how they relate to me. But it is also concerned with how A relates to B, how A relates to C, how B relates to A, and how B relates to C, and how C relates to A, and a C relates to B. <laughs> I know, right? And that's just three people. Now, our brains are amazing that they can handle the complexity of that many relationships and how people interact with each other, but there is a limit. And so with each circle in Dunbar's number, Dunbar's number is just 150, and it says that that's the number of people that the brain can typically handle, and it, and it, and it ranges, right, depending on the person. So Dunbar's number is actually a range between about 100 people and 250 people is how many relationships one person can actually realistically navigate in their life successfully. Now, what about the other numbers? Now five, and that's a, again a range, it's probably two to seven people are going to be your closest friends. Absolute bosom buddies. 15 is a next layer, a next round of friendship. Those are, again, considered an inner circle friend, right? And then you have a standard group of 50 friends, and then Dunbar's number, 150, which is the limit. Now, you are a finite being. We've established that. Your brain can only handle so much. You're also limited by your time. Your inner circle gets half. your next circle gets 75% of your time. That leaves 25% of the time that you have to build relationships for groups 50 and 150. Now this seems like a bummer, right? Because we've been talking about changing the world by establishing a community and a culture that, that is, is attractive to the world, that, that, that the world will flock to, right? That's a, that's a big thing. And they're, they're, I've just given you a lot of personal responsibility for changing the world, right? Like, that's, that's a lot. That's too much, right? But what we can find is that Jesus' example matches up with this. On the Mount of Transfiguration, who did Jesus take with him? Peter, James, and John, inner circle. How many disciples are there? When Judas betrayed Jesus after he died, we see in Acts chapter 1, verses 21 through 22, so of the men who have been accompanied with us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out and among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. There were two guys that they cast lots between and Matthias got it and became part of the inner circle. There were people who followed Jesus outside of the 12 who stayed with him from the baptism of John 
and then witness the resurrection. I think he was one of the 50. We can simply follow Jesus' example and just pursue relationships that come inside our area of influence in such a way as to be kingdom growing in the church. I'm not saying that you have to be best friends with every single person in the church and have everyone over all the time. What I am saying is find someone to be intentional with. Find someone and ask them how they see God to give you a better 3D example of who God is. Find someone who's younger than you, if you're old, older than you, if you're young, and gain wisdom from them. Be intentional. And most of all, use the resources that you have at your disposal, which is your home, for the purpose of growing community true koinonia community within the body of believers. There are not enough churches in Dalton. Did you know that? If, if, we, if we would take this verse to heart, if, if half of the people in this room would start to pursue community with other believers in this room and and the Holy Spirit blessed it and started to grow us as people and started to, to make this church so attractive to people in the world because they can't get that kind of community out there. There's not enough churches in Dalton to handle that. If, if, if our church started to have richer relationships with the other churches in our area, to grow a rich community, to to show the world that we, as the big C church, are unified and love the world and want to show them the love of Christ in very sacrificial ways. There's not enough churches in Dalton. Because if every single person in Whitfield County came to a church in Whitfield County on one Sunday, Every church would average 500 people. There are not enough churches in Dalton for us to see a massive revival. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I'm going to ask the band to come up here. We're about to sing a a new song. And there are some... uh, some very powerful declarations that are made in this song. We, we believe that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good, but we also do believe and know that there is a very real 
enemy. The potential behind true koinonia in the church is, is so powerful that no wonder the enemy has spent a lot of time distracting us from it. This song is called For Me and My House. It was written by a friend of mine uh, at a church in Nashville. And it's just a declaration and a promise to the Lord that you are going to use your area of influence, the things that he's given to you for him. That is the first step. After, of course, having the Holy Spirit. And so I want you to, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sing the chorus first of this so that you can, you can catch on to the melody. It's very simple. But then if this is something that you want, I, I, I want to invite you not to sing if you don't mean it. But if this is something that you want, if you want to experience more biblical community in your life, in this church, in our county, and in the world, I welcome you to sing this along with us. For me and my house, we're gonna serve you for me and my house. You'll get the praise for me and my house. We're gonna love you always. For me and my house, we're gonna worship for me in my house. You'll get your way for me in my house. We're gonna love you always. If that's you this morning, I invite you to stand and sing that chorus again for me in my house. For me in my house, we're gonna serve you for me in my house. You'll get the praise for me in my house. We're gonna love you always. For me in my house, we're gonna worship for me in my house. You'll get your way for me in my house. We're gonna love you always. Set our homes apart for Let your glory come and fill each Pour out your peace, move in your strength, flood with your healing stream. We have set our
Spirit, thank you for meeting us here. Thank you for being in this room, in this place. Father, we commit ourselves to you now. We surrender all that we are and all that we have to you. Father, I pray that you would build something of us. Light a fire in us. Grow our love for one another so that the world may see your love, Jesus. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Lord, lift his countenance to you and bring you peace.
Amen. You may go in peace.